Herzlich willkommen to the Syncopated Sisters. This podcast will celebrate and highlight the women who were active in the creation and development of blues and jazz. You will hear about female musicians, composers, bandleaders and more. There will also be interviews with female artists from the jazz and swing scenes of today. I'm Nina Thaler from Berlin, host and creator of the series. Enjoy listening. Are you ready for another excitement? I sure am. For this episode, I have invited another guest, Andrea Schwemmer, also known as Emma. Emma is an actress, acting coach, musician, moderator and works for several film festivals. She plays the clarinet and sings in an all-female band, the Two Books Orchestra from Berlin. And that is how I got to know her. And while getting to know her, I can also say that she is a wonderful person. And I'm very delighted to have her here today with me. The artist that we will talk about today is the great Alberta Hunter. And I'm super happy that we will be talking about Alberta Hunter today. But also, it is a bit tough. Tough because there's so much to talk about. She is such an interesting and admirable artist. And it might be hard to pick certain topics or concentrate on just some, as Emma and I have already discovered when we were talking up front. So, for sure, we will miss out on some interesting aspects. And we leave it up to you to fill the gaps yourself. The blues. Why the blues are part of me, said Alberta Hunter. To me, the blues are, well, almost religious. They're like a chant. The blues are like spirituals, almost sacred. When we sing the blues, we are singing out our hearts. We're singing out our feelings. Maybe we're hurt and just can't answer back. Then we sing or maybe hum the blues. Yes, to us the blues are sacred. When I sing, I walk the floor, wring my hands and cry. Yes, I walk the floor and wring my hands and cry. What I'm doing is letting my soul out. Alberta Hunter was known to be one of the most famous African-American singers during the 1920s, and she was also a composer. Black women were among the first to record the blues. Mamie Smith's version of Crazy Blues was recorded in 1920 on Columbia OK label and was very famous and successfully sold mainly among African Americans. That opened the door for quite many of those famous women like Alberta Hunter, or Ida Cox, Ethel Waters, Clara Smith, Victoria Spivey or Zippy Wallace, to have the opportunity to record during the 1920s. Alberta Hunter is often called a blues singer. I read that she did not like to be labeled as such as she sang many types of songs and only a few that could be classified as classical blues. And of course, there were so many different styles and approaches of blues. 
A lot of the black blues women contributed to the formation and establishment of blues tradition, as Daphne Duval Harrison underlines in her book Black Pearls, Blues Queens of the 1920s. And many of them have been unknown or forgotten, but Alberta Hunter was one of the better known ones. She was born 1895 in Memphis, Tennessee. She spent a lot of time in Chicago and also New York, and that is where she died in 1984. During the end of the 1920s and throughout the 30s, she toured a lot. She also performed for USO to entertain American troops in Asia, South Pacific Island and Europe. She recorded over a hundred songs. She recorded with a lot of famous musicians as Fletcher Henderson Band, Clarence Williams, Louis Armstrong or Fats Waller. In 1978, so when she was 82 years old, she recorded the album Amtrak Blues. This album was included in the Blues Hall of Fame by the Blues Foundation and 2011 herself as a person as well. So welcome, Emma. I'm very glad that you're here. Can you tell us why do you like Alberta Hunter? Hi, Nina. Thanks for having me. It's very nice. Yeah, I fell in love with Alberta Hunter because we did a band project with our all-female band about um, female composers of the 1910s to 1940s. And from all these women that came up, um, she kind of sprung out to me immediately because I saw a picture and I saw that spark in her eyes and I thought, wow, that's the woman I would like to uh, research a bit more about. Um, she just has this energy that sprang out of the picture and the more I read about her and the more I heard her songs and heard her sing, she totally kind of vibed with me and um, I, I got into deeper and deeper and fell in love with her even more. Um, I read some fan letters of her and they say about her, going to see her was like seeing an old faith healer People go in mm -hmm. with aches and pains and come out feeling like jumping up and hopping down the streets all the way home. And that's actually how I feel reading about her as well. She's so empowering and she gives me as a woman so much strength and positivity about having the grit to do what you want to do that it's just like totally inspiring. Very nice. Yeah. Thank you. And... Um As there might be people that don't know so much about Alberta Hunter's life, uh, before we start to talk about her music, um, can you tell us a little bit about her life? Maybe dates, dates of uh, her biography, or where did she grow up, uh, or something about her family? Maybe move on to the career. I don't know. You can you can choose if you want to only talk about the early years or go further. Yeah, Alberta was born in 1895 in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, her father died shortly afterwards, so she never really met him. And she was brought up by her grandmother and her mother. She had two sisters, one of her real father and a stepsister of the father that her mom kind of remarried. And But she was never close to those two sisters. She had a bit of a rough childhood as they were quite poor and... She was sexually abused by a friend of the family and even her school 
teacher kind of tried to abuse her. So in all of her life, she kind of swore herself that no one ever would step over her and that she wouldn't let herself be dealt with in a rude way. Oh, I would give it to them. I wouldn't let anybody walk over me, she said when uh, she was old uh, in a television interview that I saw. And I found that quite strong. Um, her teacher said to her, hey, girl, you can sing. And she quite took that to her heart. That's what she started to believe in. And that's what she wanted to do. So she wanted to proceed a career as a singer because she heard up in Chicago you can make $10 a week by being a singer and that's what she wanted. So when her um, school teacher, Miss Florida Cummings, the one who taught her that she can sing, said to her, hey, I have a free ride to Chicago on the train. Do you want to come along? She said, yes. So the teacher said, uh, you go back home and ask your mom if you can go. And Alberta kind of lied to her, said, yes, I'm going home to ask my mom. But what she actually did, she just hid around the corner, waited <laughs> until the train would leave and told her teacher the mother said yes. The mother never, never knew that she just walked off to Chicago by train. And um, in articles and in the book that I read uh, about her, it diverses how old she was. So there's stories from she was eight or 11 years up to she was 15, 16 when uh, she went to Chicago with her teacher. Um, I kind of settled in between 12 and 14. That's what I kind of feel credible. And that's what the book quotes as well. Um, and I think that was still quite ballsy. So she descended in Chicago from that train, went onto a cable car, and she said by luck of fate, she descended on one stop with that cable car, and that was on that exact street where she knew one woman from Tennessee, a family friend, lives. And she walked up to this woman, introduced herself. She never saw her before. She just heard of her. And this woman kind of helped her set foot in Chicago. So on the first days, she didn't work as a singer for $10 a week. She worked at a boarding house and peeled potatoes mm -hmm. the whole day long. And she slept in the cellar of that um, boarding house underneath coats. But she would not forget about her dream. And she would walk as young as she was up onto these nightclubs in Chicago, where there's a lot of mobs and gangsters hanging around and prostitutes. And she would pursue this dream. She would go every evening and annoy the people in these bars. Hey, I want to sing. Hey, I want to sing. Hey, I want to sing. And she did that for weeks and weeks and weeks. And in one evening, she just walked into a bar that was called Dago Franks. And she just walked up to the piano player and started singing a song. The only song that she would know, and the title was Where the River Shannon Flows. It wasn't a particularly good piano player either, and she didn't have a strong voice yet. But Dago Franks was a mafia and a prostitute bar, so the people kind of wanted to support her and kept on going, kept her going. And... Um, so she stayed at Dago Frank singing with that piano player for two years. And she was kind of brought up by these prostitutes. So it was a lot of white prostitutes. And she said, those women were so kind to me. They gave me clothes. They gave me um, 
sleeping possibilities. They gave me the manners. They made me the woman that I am. So she would all of her life be supportive of this kind of job. You just mentioned a book uh, that you were drawing information from. Uh, can you maybe uh, tell us what kind of book you were referring to? Or in general, was it hard or easy to find information? Is it a biography? Where, where else did you find information? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the book I was referring to is called Alberta, A Celebration in Blues, or Alberta Hunter, A Celebration in Blues. It's by Frank C. Taylor, and it's written together with Gerald Cook. It's um, a really large biography of Alberta that covers her whole life, and I'm really, really grateful for this um, book. And I have to say, I ordered it in in the US, in Indianapolis, in, a, in an old library. So I have an old library book and I can actually see from 1974, 79, um, that people um, kind of uh, took that book out to read and brought it back. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not 1974, but in the 80s. So I'm so grateful for this book. It took six weeks to arrive and I couldn't wait. Mm -hmm. And I actually had a bit of a contact with that library And um, I told them about the project and why I'm interested in Alberta. It was really beautiful. Um, But so the book is actually hard to find or get. It wasn't, That was the only way you could get this yeah, book? Yeah, you could only get second-hand books. And they were mostly in uh, archives or in kind of uh, second-hand book stores, but all in America. So I, I decided for this nearly as new copy from Indianapolis. And it has a library number on it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's gorgeous, I love it. It's a hardcover. Um, and I found several articles in newspapers of and about Alberta in, uh, on the internet, which I'm very grateful that I read. And um, from her earlier career, there is no recordings. There's a snippet from a film that you can see her, um, and there's one other snippet, but that's it. There's uh, written interviews and uh, stuff on the radio, but um, only from her later career you can see concerts and interviews on American television. And um, I watched those quite a lot. And there's a whole one-hour documentary about her life as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you want to go on and say something about her later years when she established her career? or? Yeah, after the Dago Franks that I just talked about it, um, she she actually made her $10 a week at Dago Franks. And uh, in secret, she would make much more money because um, she would talk about it in that interview um, on television that she uh, lived from tips and she would make up to $100 per night tips sometimes in her early years, even in those first two years, because uh, she was very clever. She had a deal with the waiters and she kind of um, uh, kind of snuck tips that they would get uh, onto the floor and would pick them up and put them in her pocket so they would share. But what she would do as well and wouldn't share was that she sang so softly and she called it delicately on one table 
that the other tables wouldn't hear her. And if you wanted her to come over to your own table, um, then you had to give her a tip. So um, she kind of sang and looked around the room and then she would see that people look up to her and then she would walk over and keep on singing on that table. So that's how she collected a lot of tip for herself. That is very clever indeed. That is very clever. In her later years, uh, she uh, kind of uh, would always, uh, she had this story where there was a, a man shot, the, the, there was an electric power cut and there was super dark, there was no light and then suddenly there was a gunshot and a man was actually dead next to the piano and mm. Alberta was caught with her fingers in the tip box for the musician on the piano when the light got <laughs> when the light on. went back on ah. yeah so <laughs> she, she said not was i only caught with my fingers in the tip box there was a man to my feet lying dead on the floor um so this was the the environment she started her career in in a white mof a mafia mob gangster um uh, um ambience in Chicago but she got better word got out and she would start singing in dreamland coffee um, and that's where she actually met a lot of people like Louis Armstrong who was brought up later from Memphis to play in the band Lil Armstrong Sidney Bechet and then she would make much more during a week 17 dollars during a week when she started to sing in, in dreamland if i remember correctly and that's when she brought her mom up to chicago alberta and her mom were very close she nearly never talks about her sisters but uh, she and her mom they were very similar they were loners they didn't go out much in the evening and they would prefer to to be at home and read and she i think her mother was one of her best friends and she confided a lot into her mom the mom didn't stay in chicago she went she descended from the train said oh no i hate it and went back to memphis so one of her first bigger salaries that alberta spent on her mom was kind of thrown out of the window because the mother didn't settle in chicago but she would settle in new york and they would live together mm -hmm. but that's later yeah And while at the Dreamland Coffee, um, she started to make really big money, $35 a week. And that's what she said in later years, uh, she would officially tell the taxman. But what she didn't tell the taxman, that she would sometimes go home with $350 to $400 a night in tip from a lot of mobsters that were there. They were very generous with money. Mm. And um, actually, when she was old, shortly before she died, the taxman of whom she was afraid her whole life, actually got her and she had to make a massive repayment, oh. like massive. Um, exactly. But at the Dreamland, she met Lil Harding and she started to compose as well. Yeah. Um, the topic of the composing is, uh, or compositions is interesting. And also um, the question of royalties sometimes at that period of time is interesting because... Um, it's not always easy to really nail down who was the composer of a song. Of course, also because it came from a culture where um, there was no music business before uh, or a big music industry that royalties, like dealing with ro royalties was important. But um, um, And that songs were, let's say, a collective um, 
how do you say, a collective uh, good. Yeah, um, it was before copyright. She said that yeah. in um, 1979 that especially the white folks stole the music from yeah. colored people. She said, man, they, I don't want to be rude, but they actually stole our lives and uh, that they didn't know better how to protect their songs, their material. Yeah. And she said in that show as well, uh, I wouldn't hum my songs to anybody until they were up in Washington. Mm -hmm. So that was quite a joke. But the, the reality is that um, even some of her own songs um, were taken away from her, um, officially composed by other people. And she didn't get royalties for some of her songs for decades. Mm. Yeah. What I find interesting in the case of uh, Alberta Hunter is the, the way she composed. And I know that Uh, Lil Harden Armstrong and even Lovie Austin played a bit of a role in it. Um, I've read a book about Lil Harden Armstrong and um, uh, there from there I know that uh, also Lil Harden and Alberta Hunter, they both quite came from Memphis, Tennessee, but that they have met in Chicago in the Dreamland Cafe and that they both were pretty different characters and had very different musical backgrounds because Lil Harden, she was an educated musician, she was able to write and, of course, also read music, and that Alberta Hunter couldn't read music and that she uh, didn't, even, didn't know in what kind of key she was singing songs. And even though they, they were different... Um, that they both had in common that there were minorities in that time, being female musicians in the same scene. And in that book, I also read that they were uh, actually impressed by each other's talent. And when I read this, I liked that comment. But maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the composing process. Um, Alberta was very good with the audience. So even if it wasn't their, her own songs, she would just make up lines uh, up in that moment coming from Woodville Theatre as well or having done a lot of Woodville Theatres before the Dreamland. Um, we're coming to this um, a bit later again. Um, she had the talent to make up her own stand-up songs and lines uh, depending on how the audience would would feel or behave. She had the audience always in her grip and uh, a lot with her punchlines. And she didn't mind to even change lyrics from the songs that uh, were the original lyrics. Uh, lyrics. So um, the composing, she's, she said she had a melody in her head and she would hum it to the musicians. And then they actually, the band would, would pick up the song uh, the, that she was humming. And she said she doesn't know how they did it, but they they hit the inside of her heart very often. She said maybe it's because of they were um, colored musicians as well and that they came from a, an equal understanding background and that they would understand what she was humming and that they would understand her lyrics so well that they would actually find the music fitting around her humming um, melody line and she uh, said about them some of the time I just sit there and make up something and start humming and the orchestra would pick it up now how would they know what I had on my mind how would they know to go from one note to the other it's just that kindred feeling it's just that kindred feeling and uh, she would say as well that she didn't know a note she couldn't read notes she couldn't 
um, read chords. She said she wouldn't even know where up and down was in a song. She would just hum it. She had it in her guts and the musicians uh, would start playing it. I have another note uh, quote from her when she said, I knew nothing about the arrangements. They just played them for me. I would just say, play so-and-so in E-flat, but I didn't even know what I was saying about the key. I had heard it by musicians saying it before. Hey, let's play it for her in B-flat or E-flat. But till the end of her life, she she didn't know how to read mm. music. I think that's a wonderful example of... Uh that the approach of music can be so, so different and that there's no right or wrong about um, how you play your music if you play it with your heart or from from wherever it comes from. And she said about Lil Harding Man, was she a, a, a pianist? She was so good, she could play everything. She um, could play out of the humming that she did, that's how they put a song together that uh, mm. Alberta was humming to Lil and Lil would just understand equally what she was trying to get across. And Lil could literally make a beautiful music out of every note, out of every chord, out of every humming. That was something that uh, Alberta uh, inspired a lot about Lil Harding and she thought she's very good in mm. what she's doing. Do you have any favorite songs? that Alberta Hunter composed or sang? I think my actual favorite song of her is My Castle's Rocking because I'm coming, I'm a singer and I have a theater background and that was uh, what I already said before. It was the phase before Dreamland Coffee. It was Panama um, at the Panama Bar and uh, it was a part Woodville Theater up on the third floor. That's where Alberta was. And for the white folks on the LM ground floor, there was a, different style of music and um, the the audience could come and choose if they want to have the more kind of um, normal um, jazz music style in the in the uh, ground floor or if they want to come up to Alberta and her her troupe on the third floor and um, where she was kind of doing woodville acts with dancers and and the the she said um Even though the, the venue and the ground floor was the main venue where the people would come, the more word got out that Alberta Hunter and her troop is having so much fun up in the in the third floor, the more people came up to the third floor and actually, sorry, my words, pissed the people off that were on stage uh, on the ground floor. Mm. And uh, My Castle's Rocking, uh, she would sing it sometimes with different lyrics, but uh, it's, it's the song that reflects this face for me most. And, and it's like... Come on up some night, my castle's rocking. You can bust your con, cause everything's free. On the top floor to the rear, that's where you're gonna find me. Stuff is here in the chick's belly room with glee. You don't have to be afraid, cause I'm paying the boys to protect me. Tell them, cut down, tell them they can let that conscience be. Oh, come on up. Bring your gang and restart that ball rolling. My castle's rocking. Come on by and see. Yeah, my castle's rocking is one of my favorite songs by Alberta because for me it reflects exactly this phase of her life in um, this Panama bar. Um, I through the song, the music, and the the the, the lyrics she's singing, she's opening. Uh, 
like a movie for me in my head. I'm with her on that third floor. I see the girls romping their bellies, dancing around. I see the people having fun. Um, and uh, I, I kind of even see people queuing up on the stairs trying to get into the room and, and, and have a ball with them. And that's why I'm so grateful for this uh, song because even though there's no recordings or inter so many interviews from her in that time, the song brings that to me, the life she had in that moment for me. And that's very precious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I read uh, in, the, in the book of Angela Davis, Blues Legacies and Black Feminism, which I can really recommend reading, um, that Alberta Hunter wrote or sang a lot of songs that were women-to-women -women advice songs. For example, like A Good Man is Hard to Find is one of the songs. Um, or actually also her uh, probably the best or well-known song that Alberta Hunter composed uh, is The Downhearted Blues. And there's a quote I like to read from that book of Angela Davis. While the overwhelming majority of Bessie Smith's 160 available recorded songs allude to rejection, abuse, desertion and unfaithful lovers, the preponderant emotional stance of the singer-protagonist, also true of Moraini, is far from resignation and despair. On the contrary, the most frequent stance assumed by the women in these songs is independence and assertiveness, indeed defiance, bordering on and sometimes erupting into violence. The first song Bessie Smith recorded, a cover by Alberta Hunter's popular Downhearted Blues, portrays a heartbroken woman whose love for a man was answered with mistreatment and rejection. But her bout with the blues does not result in her dejectedly hanging her head and crying. Smith represents this woman as proud and even contemptuous of the man who, was, who has mistreated her, accentuating in the following lines the woman's self-respect. It may be a week, or it may be a month or two. It may be a week, or it may be a month or two. But the day you quit me, baby, it's coming home back to you. Yeah, I'm not so sure myself where she got those very strong lines from, but um, I can only guess interpre interpreting them as a woman that maybe it came from her early abuse in the childhood. And um, I think she, being herself queer, um, she was very strong in female empowerment. And I think it was very important for her. Yeah. And um, this Downhearted Blues is a good example for me as well. Bethy, Bessie Smith got so famous with it. But actually, uh, um, Alberta recorded it first. Um And she recorded it um, with Paramount Records. And um, a, a year, the, the guy from Paramount sold it secretly to Columbia Records. And Columbia Records paid royalties to him. It was Alberta's song, but she didn't get any penny from the royalties from Bessie Smith. And they, you have to, the, it was. 850,000 albums um, Bessie Smith sold within three months and um, now decades later she gets uh, royalties for it she fought for it a long time but uh, 
she would never record um, uh, for that guy of Paramount again because uh, she learned her lesson and um, she became quite tough. She uh, she fought for her royalties. She fought for theater payments. Um, there was a guy in a Broadway theater. She was hired for a show and um, they had a contract for $250 a week. And then he retreated from that contract by saying, oh, the theater wasn't full, so I only pay you $100 per week. Um, and she would fight for that money. She would go back to the theater every every evening and um, claim her rights. And that was her way of standing up for herself, which I mm -hmm. find um, very strong. She did that her whole life. Um, and she said uh, her version was very nice, but the, the, the version of Bessie was so strong. I mean, she uh, never met Bessie personally, um, but she said Bessie Smith voice was so strong and loud you could hear her over several blocks and uh, I think she was quite uh, amazed by the way Bessie sang that song. Mm. So we have touched the struggles uh, in the music business and um, of course there were a lot of struggles of racism during that time too and a lot of the artists of color had to face and deal somehow with that racism. Do you know Anything about how Alberta Hunter dealt with that? And also, as being a lesbian, was there any prejudices about that that she had to face? I mean, we are talking about a really early stage in jazz um, and uh, pre-Billie Holiday, pre-Ella Fitzgerald, who pre-Rosa Parks, who said uh, on that bench uh, in the 60s, you know, um, racism in the States was quite strong. That's why a lot of... Um, black artists faced towards Europe where they were welcomed and um, they said um, we had to constantly swallow our, our pride to get to work. We resented it but we wanted to get on the big time. That's what Alberta said. It's a direct quote. She went on, when you wanted to do something you accept what you can get until you're in a position to speak out. And um, so at this very early time Uh, as I said, in, especially in the States, racism was very strong and deeply rooted and a lot of black artists went and turned to Europe where they were welcome and equal treated as artist stars. So uh, the Europeans were literally craving um, for this music, for this style, for this art. And um, in, in Europe, she sang first, uh, she set foot uh, in Paris and built up her career there. And once the word got out that um, uh, she's a fabulous singer and artist, uh, she was welcomed to London, to uh, Denmark. She even traveled to Egypt. She traveled around the world with her art. Um, she sang in um, Casino de Paris, she sang in the Drury Lane Theatre in Showboat. She she became a star in, in, in Europe and she sang at the Dorchester Hotel, the Prince of Wales, the future George the uh, Sixth was a, a fan of her. So she was in very elaborated circles in Europe and every time she went back to the States it was like a slap in the face to to realize that in the States back home, even though they longed to go back home, um, racism was still so strong. And so a lot of black artists kind of, especially she, she said she, I was looking forward to go home and then I, I filed for a visa as soon as I left the ferry. Um, 
so they had to to deal with a lot of that and mm. um about the 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 lesbian a relationship of hers she was a very private person i said this before she was quoting herself as a loner she would openly be talking with her mother but not about her private life either the mother and alberto were very similar they they wouldn't talk about anything in her private life so her relationship of years lottie tyler um um no one actually knew that they were a couple that they were lovers The Lottie was going to Europe first time with Alberta. They would go out uh, in in New York. They lived together in New York, um, but no one knew about it. They were just female friends. Even when Alberta was dead, a very very old friend of hers um, said uh, with a winking eye, "Yes, they were really good friends." Um, but even he didn't kind of. Um, betray Alberta in talking about her relationship with women. So that's how secretive she was um, because she didn't want to face prejudice or have having have to deal with it simply. Mm. Because at that time, people were very conservative and she was fearing that this could turn against her. Mm. Yeah. Um, how do you feel? Should we make... Um, a cut and not talk about the the time during the second world war and just uh, go over to to the cut of her life when she um, decided to step out of the music business yeah we can talk about uh, the cut but i i just wanted to quickly say something about the second world war because yes. She was very patriotic, uh, Alberta, and she wanted to support the boys on the front line. And she actually went with the USO um, to as a as a musician to the front line. She was 52 days in the Second World War, uh, war at the front. She was the, the one of the women, or the woman who was on the front line most. They would perform for troops, like we know this from Marlene Dietrich, but she would do this as well. She Uh, had to hide in 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 holes when there was attacks and but for her it was it was very important to support um, the U U.S. Army. She was not only in World War II; she was at the Korean South and Korea War as well. And she had this fabulous story. Um, she was very brave. She was ballsy. She always said, "I had the nerves. I had the nerves to stand up for myself, and I had the nerves to." to go to this front line. Um, and she said, that, <laughs> I have a good story about the, the Korean War, uh, where, where they were so close to the front line that they had to perform for the soldiers in an in a army truck at the back where they were. Uh, everything was hung and dark so that nobody would see that there was people. And some army soldiers would lie on the ground of that truck and um, put torches upwards so that the artists were illuminated. And um, she said uh, one night they were singing uh, on the South Korean side and she said in an interview that um, she heard North Korean people clap on the other side of the hill because they were, <laughs> they were listening to their singing as well. And I mm -hmm. think this is quite a precious story. And I, it, I'm totally amazed by the, the power she has and the, the bravery. Mm. Yeah, that's very good to mention also about that time. Um, and you talked about the, the big cut in her life. I mean, she yeah. she became a nurse. 
after 50 years of um, or 45 years of singing career, um, she became a nurse after her mom died. And um, she always said it's due to the fact that her mother died that she turned to nursing. But it, uh, it, it was several things at the same time. Ella Fitzgerald came up, Billie Holiday, all this kind of new gang singers um, came up. And uh, the old stars like Alberta Hunter, um, they they wouldn't book so many theater, woodville or jazz bars anymore. So she said, um, before I haven't got it in me anymore, and then she just quit. Mm. And that was final. She just quit. She quit so severely that 20 years later, uh, when she succeeded in a second career, one of the piano players who knew her from her early years said, but you are dead when he saw her. Yeah. And she said, no, darling, I'm not dead. <laughs> What I, I like about uh, the fact that she kind of twisted her life around is that she um, turned to be a nurse when she was about 60 years old. And uh, was she? I, I think, think she, was, uh, she was 62, uh, but she said she's 50. So, um, yeah. And it, it was the same like she did in her early years when she entered the, the, the Dago Franks at, at, in Chicago. She just kept on going to that um, nursing school where she wanted to get an education every day and pursued the headmaster, take me, take me, take me, I'm going to be a good nurse. Yeah. And it turned out she was a good nurse. So she, she, the headmaster took her in and helped her lie about her age. They, she was 62, but she was actually only 50. Uh, she was 50. They made her 50. Mm. So they made her 12 years younger. And um, after one year, she um, presumed as working as a, as a, a nurse for 20 years. Mm. And uh, she was never late, she said, in her whole 20 years. And she was very strict. Uh, the, she wouldn't um, tell anybody about her previous career. Her colleagues who uh, saw her perform when she was uh, retired from nursing, they wouldn't have a guess that she was this well-known blues and jazz singer from earlier mm. on. So, And she loved nursing. She, she did nursing as everything she did. If, you, if she did something, she did it fully hearted. And she was there with the patients. Um, and yeah, she was a well-loved nurse. And they made her retire when she was... When they thought she's... 67 but in actual fact she was <laughs> it's so amazing <laughs> so yeah. much old, 12 years older yeah. i mean also to do to to do it uh, turn like this in your life at that age i think that's very courageous and very yeah very um example that's a good example yeah she did a role two, model yeah she did two recordings Action. and during that time um she was kind of brought out of the whole of nursing um dragged out for two all-star recordings of early jazz but that was it she didn't talk much about it as well she even went into live into a nursing uh, like house next to the hospital but she kept her flat mm -hmm. in new york uh, and sometimes she would go back there And sit there and enjoy the liberty of having a bigger flat. And so in 1978, I think, that is when she returned to do music again. And that is when she recorded the album Amtrak Blues that we've mentioned before by the age of 82. Or you never know how old she actually was then. But... Um, How how did this comeback uh, came into life? How how did she return? Did she return on on her own 
terms or was there somebody persuading her to come back? It said that one day after she retired, a friend persuaded her to go to a party where there was all the old crowd uh, in New York. And she kind of was so angry because her, he wanted her to go so hard that she in the end went along because he made her so angry. And she was angry the whole evening. So she lingered at the at the bar and ate ham. That's what it said. And there um, uh, a guy approached her, Charlie why don't you want to sing one of your songs? You're Alberta Hunter. He recognized her and uh, he persuaded her. And she always loved to be persuaded in her way as well. So she started to sing one or two songs and they were so um, um, amazed by her singing. The voice didn't go away. It got better with age and with the experience of the war and the, the nursing years. So the depth that she brought to the songs and the lyrics uh, was very uh, truthful and deep. And uh, the voice got a really deep note. Um, so he said to her, hey, why don't you call Barney Josephson? He always looks for new talents in the cookery. It was uh, in the village in, in New York. And then... Um, She said, oh, no, uh, if Barney Josephson wants me, let him call me. And that uh, he gave, uh, she gave Charlie the phone number and actually Josephson called her. Mm. And uh, the rest is history. Um, she uh, should open uh, a show for him in uh, like two or three months of time. And she would uh, meet uh, with a piano player and he arranged all her songs um, because there was no no music notated from her. So he sat down and arranged all the songs together with her. And they didn't manage to open in several months. They opened much later. But when they opened, they were an instant hit. And uh, that's when her second career pursued. Um, mm. She was 82, I think. And she kept on going until she died. <laughs> and she toured to... Um, to Brazil and the people loved her and all the videos you can see online is when she's so old and she brought out the punchlines she was full of joke and humor and she she just laid it on them that's what she kept on saying yeah so that's so fabulous it's so amazing and to see her as this old woman with so much energy singing the songs with so much truthfulness and depth and humor and always having this twinkling eye it's just absolutely amazing for me yeah i truly agree so um i thank you very very much for being here with me today and um it was very interesting all the little details that you that you know and shared with us so thank you very much for being here and At the end, would you like to add something about the, tell us something about the project that you are doing with the Toolbox Orchestra or anything else you would like to announce that's happening in the future? Yeah, um, first of all, um, I'm very happy that I was invited here to talk with you about Alberta Hunter. Um, I truly fell in love with her. Um, and um, with our toolbox orchestra, we are an all-female band and we work on female composers from the 1910s to the 1935s, 40s. 
and some of them who are forgotten as well. So we digged down and uh, tried to find compositions and um, music and um, we want to make an album and play concerts about these female composers. Female musicians play songs about f mm. by female composers. So that's our next project or yeah. is the ongoing project in the year already yeah so people listen to alberta hunter enjoy her music her heartwarming singing her humor and her presence and get inspired by that and also check out the toolbox orchestra thank you nina for having me <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the nice talk and as alberta would say let's lay it on them As with all productions, this podcast could only be realized because of a team. In this case, a wonderful group of female distributors and supporters. Thank you all for encouragement, help and advice. Special thanks go out to Anne Borchers for playing the bass, Andrea Ramirez Ruiz for the visuals, Zoe Langdell for mother tongue support and Francois Perdriou for mixing and mastering. This podcast is part of the Swinging Europe Network and co-funded by the European Union. Thank you for listening. If you have any kind of feedback you want to share, be it a suggestion for another female musician to be represented here, something you feel that is missing, you want to discuss, whatever it is, feel free to reach out to me via email to nina at syncopation.de And remember, every day is Women's Day. Yes, babes. Bye-bye and tschüssikowski.